We are in a section in Philippians 2, uh, continuing on from last week, where Paul is informing the Philippians about his intentions when it comes to his plans on sending two exceptional fellow servants to the Philippians to minister to them. Last week in verses 19 through 24 of this passage, if you remember, we looked at the type of relationship that Paul had with Timothy. Paul has high praise for Timothy, and indeed we see that um, there that the, the Philippians also are quite fond of Timothy. We saw Paul's desire also to see the people of Philippi to grow in their sanctification and and understood that Timothy would be of great service to them in that area. And we were also able to see in Paul's description of his relationship with Timothy an example of the exact type of love and devotion to one another, the type of kindred-hearted uh, partners in ministry that he was calling the Philippians and us to be. And the Philippians know Timothy, if you remember. He was with Paul when Paul first stepped foot in Philippi and began to help establish the church in Philippi. Uh, about 10 years prior to when this letter that we're, we've been studying was written, um, Paul knows that they, they know and love him and think highly of him. And that was evident in the passage that we looked at last week. The thing that would have maybe come as a surprise to them is what we're going to be talking about a lot today, that, that Timothy was not the one who ends up delivering this letter to them. In fact, this passage of, of chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, actually seems to be serving the main purpose of Paul explaining to the Philippians why Epaphroditus is the one who delivered this letter to them, and that they're still unable to see Timothy. Look again at this passage, just have it all in our heads. That, uh, look at, uh, starting in verse 19 of chapter 2, and Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, that was a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. As we read that passage, it seems like Paul anticipates that the Philippians might be maybe even disappointed to see Epaphroditus rather than Timothy, even though it is absolutely clear that this isn't because they think little of Epaphroditus. Clearly from this passage, nothing could be further from the truth. They love Epaphroditus. But it seems pretty clear that Paul feels the need to explain why it was important that Timothy stay with him, and why it is important that Epaphroditus go to them. So Timothy is to stay with him, Epaphroditus is a, to go to them, and he wants to show them why that is important. Normally a section like this would come at the end of a letter. This is, and, and it might strike you as odd seeing it here in the middle of the letter. If you are familiar with a lot of Paul's writings, you see him talking about people who are going to come and visit them right at the end. And that's what we would normally see. But Paul places this section right here in the middle um, because of these unique circumstances. That they, uh, they, they, he needs to explain why Epaphroditus is coming, not Timothy. So 
but also by doing so, he is able to use the occasion to raise up the character of Epaphroditus as an exemplary model of much of what he has been commending and instructing them thus far in this letter and for much of the rest of it as well. If you remember, uh, back in verse 127, if, if you started there and then you went all the way through right to the section that we started last week, Paul begins verse 27 with the first imperative in the entire book when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He then takes that in the next several sections and explains and commands what, they, what, what that would look like. What does it look like to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ? And as, you, as we read through those sections, we see that this is played out primarily in their relationships to each other. He speaks of their unity, their need for unity, their, their need for boldness, to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ together, to be of one mind, to be full of love for one another, to have no selfish ambition, but to put the interests of others in front of their own. He gives the ultimate example. He moves into that ultimate example in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that example of Jesus Christ and his humility. And he asks them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling as God works in them for his good pleasure, and to do everything without grumbling or disputing. To live in such a way that Paul will be proud of them and of proud of them in the time that he has spent in ministry to them. And to be glad and to rejoice. This is what he's been telling them throughout this letter. And now while Paul is explaining to them his reasons for sending Epaphroditus to them and not Timothy, he uses it as an opportunity to magnify the character of Timothy and especially Epaphroditus before them as those who are examples of much of what he has already commanded of them. Throughout this book, we've seen Paul's concern for the Philippian church growing in his concern for them, growing in their understanding of how they are to be. And just as he says in 127, standing, he wants them to be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That concern is, is becoming more and more evident. That's what he wants them to be. That's what he wants them to become. That's what he's been describing and commanding. And now he's pointing out those very things in the example of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus in this section gives us a great example of how Christians, how we in this church, are to relate to one another. And that's what we're going to explore in this passage today. We're going to examine what Paul has to say about Epaphroditus, and through looking at this exemplary, exemplary man and what Paul has to say about him, we're going to see four principles that should define our relationships within the church. Four principles that should define relationships within the church. One, thinking relationally of each other. Two, loving selflessly. Three, submitting joyfully. And four, serving sacrificially. So let's look again at just, at, at just the, these verses we're going to be talking about today, verses 25 through 30, and see if you can see where those points are coming from. Verse 25 through 30, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So, with that in mind, the first point, thinking relationally. Thinking relationally. And, it's, and you see it right there in that first verse. By this we mean, when we're talking about thinking relationally, that by this we mean 
How do we understand our relationship to each other as believers? How do we think of ourselves in relation to other Christians, other church members? Or more specifically, how do we, how do we think of them in relation to us? When we have the same understanding of our fellow Christians that Paul has of Epaphroditus, then those last three points that we're going to talk about come to us relatively easily. So loving selflessly, submitting joyfully, and serving sacrificially will come pretty naturally to those who we view as fellow brothers, fellow laborers, and fellow soldiers. In the original language, the emphasis on how Paul views Epaphroditus' relationship to himself and the Philippian Christians in verse 25 is pretty strong. Look at verse 25 again. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Paul's view of Epaphroditus' relationship to himself and the Philippian Christians in verse 25 there is, is, is really strong, and it actually loses a little bit of the emphasis in the English translation. The verse actually begins with the, with the word necessary, which emphasizes just how important Paul believes it is to send Epaphroditus to them. That's where the emphasis lies. He then mentions Epaphroditus' name, so the sentence would read something like, or should read, necessary, I thought it, Epaphroditus, to send to you. However, in between the subject, Epaphroditus, and the verb to send, Paul places all five of the qualifiers that we see there. Right? So it's actually like he says, Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and your minister to my need, I send to you. So it's like he's emphasizing the importance and the privilege of the Philippians to have this man sent to them. It's like saying, Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and your minister to my need, he is the one I'm sending to you. He's the guy. You're getting him. It's like the, the way someone might announce winning a prize on a game show, describing you know, just how wonderful something is before telling the person that that is what they've won. You like describe it first, and then you show it to them. And the point is to convey to the Philippians by stacking just wonderful, true descriptions, one on top of another, just how blessed they should consider themselves to be receiving Epaphroditus back to themselves. And one of the reasons that they should be so excited and encouraged by the arrival of Epaphroditus is exactly because of the true description of who he is to them as a fellow Christian. First of all, Paul calls him his brother. He calls him his brother. This is the general reminder that he is a brother in Christ. Brother in Christ, the term and sister in Christ, we use those so much that uh, they, they start to lose their meaning. But that is a fellow believers, we're supposed to remember, fellow believers are part of the same family. Part of the same family. This is what we're going to be reminded of just in just a little while when we come together for the Lord's table. Before God, all mankind stands naturally in a state of sin and rebellion. But God in His kindness sent Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life in our place and then suffered and died on the cross in our place, taking upon himself the just wrath of God that was rightly due to all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in him. This is what Christ has done for us in the gospel. But this was not an atonement made for the sake of individuals, but an atonement made for a people for his church, for his bride. Again, in just a few moments, we're going to come together. We're going to partake of the Lord's table together as a church family. This is an ordinance that God has given to the church to come together, to partake together, to remember together. It's why we were in, uh, when we were apart for those first few months um, last year, we did not do some sort of online communion thing. Because it's an ordinance given to the gathered church. 
a reminder of what God has done for us in Christ, saving a people to himself, uniting us to Christ in a way that makes us closer than family. Closer than family. That is why the word brother is used so frequently. It represents the true reality of our relationship to one another. A lot of times you hear different parts of the culture adopt familial terms when talking about people who are, who are not their, their blood brothers. You hear that often. Uh, military men often refer to each other as brothers, band of brothers, you know. Uh, sororities refer to each other as sisters. Fraternities refer to each other as brothers. And even just close friends who maybe don't have close relationships with their actual, actual family refer to one another as brothers or sisters because that is how they feel. Because that is how they feel that those people are. And I guess that, that's pretty cool when that happens and when relationships like that can happen. But Paul is not just describing how he feels. So you, you can't read the word brother in Scripture and read back into it the way brother is talked about in non-familial relationships in our culture. You cannot do that. Paul is not talking about, the, when he calls him his brother, it's not about how he feels about Epaphroditus. He's describing a reality, a reality about Epaphroditus. They are closer than actual blood brothers because they have become true brothers through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, so church is not a place you go. It is a family you have been saved into. A family you've been saved into. We have been adopted by God the Father through Jesus Christ. We are together His sons and daughters, true brothers and sisters in the Lord. Beloved, this is a fundamental reality that we need to pray that we can recognize more and more because as things get more and more difficult, it is this understanding that keeps us from despair. As our blood family maybe abandons us, leaves us, seeks after different things, we have a true family in the Lord. We could spend so much more time on this understanding of spiritual family, but it comes up so much in Philippians that I'm confident I'll get to talk about it more and more in future sermons. But Paul then goes into this description, calls him not just my brother, but my fellow worker, my fellow laborer. So we are also to see each other as fellow laborers. Although Paul is an exceptionally gifted apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he understands Epaphroditus to be his fellow laborer. There is no hint, no hint whatsoever of Paul thinking of his abilities and his contributions to the work of the Lord as more significant than those of Epaphroditus. He views him as a fellow laborer, as a co-worker. It indicates that Paul recognizes him as one who is working towards the same goal that he is. There is the goal of the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the expansion of the kingdom of God and Paul and Epaphroditus are working toward these goals together. This is a great encouragement to all of us. The reminder that the Great Commission was given to the church, not to a bunch of individuals. We have a great contingent of co-laborers. And we are all to take the jobs that God has given us and do them with all of our hearts, knowing that we are not working alone. Everyone in here is a precious, perfectly placed piece granted by God for this church to accomplish that which God has placed us in this place and time to accomplish His will. We don't look around and compare who is doing what job and then ranking jobs based on importance the same way that we see so often in the world and worldly jobs, well, we understand that we are fellow workers together. The ministry that takes place between Paul and the Philippians is impossible apart from Epaphroditus. He's the one that came from Philippi with the gift that the Philippian church had collected. 
And he brought it to Paul. Now he is the one that is going to take the canonical letter of Philippians back to the Philippians, the intended audience. In this scenario, then, it is ridiculous to rank jobs in terms of importance because without one of the jobs, Paul's job or Epaphroditus' job, the Philippians don't read what's in the book of Philippians ever. The ministry doesn't get done as it should. And there are certainly other specific ways that Epaphroditus probably ministered to Paul in the Philippian church. But even just those, just, even just those ways of being the one who brings the gift to Paul, and the one who brings the letter back to the Philippians, even in just those ways, he's absolutely indispensable for the work of God in his church. I was trying to think in terms of our church, of just all the things that have taken place, even just this week, only within only the stuff that I've seen in the actual church building, tasks that need to get done for the church to continue to operate and fulfill its mission. I'm sure I couldn't possibly think of them all, but but just some of the things that I really quick reviewed. Uh, several people uh, coming in during the week, helping with all forms of office and finance stuff, preparing the Lord's table for us, setting up rooms and chairs. Uh, we had all week at different times counselors and counseling meetings going on at different times of the day, most days this week. Um, children's ministry training, children's ministry work being done, women's Bible studies being prepared for, um, so many servants for the children on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. Uh, the communication from the red team going on, planning for their next outing, uh, music team practice. Uh, th- there's there's an usher meeting and training yesterday that most of you didn't even know about. You're just the beneficiaries of what they're what they're doing together. There's guys coming in working on the bathrooms, people working outside on the grounds. Someone was mowing the lawn yesterday while I was here. I heard them. I don't know who it was. Thank you though. I'm. I'm sure I'm missing several things, and, and who knows all of the other church-related work and ministry that is going on outside the building, and meetings, and phone calls, and emails, and all of this going on all the time. These are all things, all things that need to be done in order for our church to continue to do the work that we have been called to do, and to do it with greater and greater efficiency, and greater and greater excellence to the glory of God. There is so much going on here, so much ministry and things that need to be done to facilitate ministry, and it is all accomplished because we're fellow workers, indispensable to one another. We need all of those people, everyone, all of you doing what you're doing and doing even more. So family fellow workers, and he also calls him my fellow soldier. Fellow soldier, he's someone that Paul sees as joining him in even the most difficult of spiritual battles. As we often see, Paul equates aspects of the Christian life with fighting in a war. He does this often. It's one of his, his uh, favorite illustrations. And it probably is one of his favorite illustrations because that's really what it is. People's eternal souls are at stake in what we do here. It's actually more serious than a war when you think about it. These are things at an eternal level. In war, you're going to lose your physical life. We're trying to help people in terms of eternal life. So he's a fellow soldier, at least partly because they're being attacked by the same enemy together. Policies of Epaphroditus getting the same arrow shot at him. As Paul looks around and sees himself being attacked by the lies of false teachers, the authority of the Roman government that has imprisoned him, everything that is being used against him by Satan and a godless culture that hates the truth, as this is going on, he is able to look around even during his suffering, and he can see Epaphroditus next to him faithfully fighting as his fellow soldier. Different ways, different tasks, but fighting the same battle. This increasingly hostile culture, being faithful means that every Christian should be feeling the battle to some extent. 
It's going to be different depending on where you work or go to school. But some extent. Therefore, if we're all being faithful, we should be able to look around this church and see brothers and sisters in Christ fighting the same battle, fellow soldiers, a church full of fellow soldiers. In addition to those three areas where Paul identifies who Epaphroditus is to him, he, he next brings, us, brings up the specific ways in which he was a ministering agent alongside the Philippians. Right? There are some, these are some of the specific ways in which Epaphroditus has demonstrated himself to be a fellow laborer and fellow soldier. He was First, he was their messenger and minister to Paul's needs on their behalf. Just flip over real quick, look at 418, the other mention of Epaphroditus in here. As Paul is closing out his letter, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Epaphroditus brought Paul this gift from the Philippians. He was, he was their hand, he was literally, Epaphroditus was literally the hands and feet of the Philippians in getting this money and gift that they collected. And then he was the one, Epaphroditus was the one who did the extremely difficult work of traveling all the way to Rome to deliver it. Again, a four to seven week trip to Rome. And as we're going to talk about in a little bit, a trip that apparently almost cost him his life. Everything that we know about Epaphroditus comes to us in the book of Philippians. So it is unclear in, in what other areas Epaphroditus may have been gifted to serve the church. He probably has other gifts. But clearly Paul and the Philippians thought highly of him, thought much of him. That said, it is difficult to read this text without getting the strong impression that Paul has a concern that these Philippians are actually going to be very sad that Timothy's not coming to them, at least not yet. Indeed, the previous section that we talked about last week indicates that they had a great relationship with Timothy. They know exactly how wonderful and gifted of a servant that Timothy is. You can easily imagine a scenario where upon sending Epaphroditus, the Philippians were probably eagerly anticipating Timothy, if anyone, Timothy would be the one to return with Paul's response to their gift. I mean, they, they missed him. They had a history with him. And since we do know that Timothy was a gifted pastor, he was handpicked by Paul himself for much ministry, they might have also had the desire to receive Timothy's gifting, to receive Timothy's ministry to them. So after Paul briefly explains why he will not be sending Timothy, he feels the need to remind them of the great blessing of receiving Epaphroditus, and that they should feel nothing but joy about having him back. This is Paul's understanding of Epaphroditus, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. And it's a great reminder of how we are to think of one another also. We think of everything great and true about each brother and sister that God places in our life or gives to us in a particular time and need. And we don't concentrate for a second on what gifts they don't have what they don't possess. And we need to view each other in these categories also. As we take communion together in a, in a few moments, let's remember that we are participating in a, a family meal. Indeed, it is the very representation of the atoning sacrifice that makes us a family. We're taking communion together as brothers and sisters, fellow workers doing our part, working towards our common goal, and fellow soldiers fighting the battle together, coming together at this time, and remembering what it is that brought us together. This is how we're to think of each other in the church. These should be the first descriptions that pop into your mind whenever you're talking about, whenever you're thinking about any of your fellow church members. Brother, sister, fellow worker, fellow soldier. If other things are crossing your mind first, then you're not thinking relationally in the way that you should be as a member of the church. You're not thinking about the true 
relationships that you have with your brothers and sisters here. Conversely, before we move on to the next point, let's, let's also think about the fact that these are the ways in which Christians relate to each other, right? We know brother, sister, fellow worker, fellow soldier. That's how we relate to each other. Is that what your life looks like? Is it easy for your fellow Christians to think of you that way? Is it easy for your fellow Christians to call you brother or sister? Does your physical family take priority over your spiritual one? Is it your family that you share the blood of Christ with that you prioritize and give yourself for? Or to the family that you merely share biological DNA with? What about being a fellow worker? Is that you? Are you actively involved somewhere using your gifts, your abilities to advance the kingdom of God, the mission of the church? Are you part of the means that God is using to grow this church, to expand its ministry? Or are you content just being only someone that the church is being built up and growing to minister to? One who enjoys receiving the ministry of the church, but not really laboring to expand the ministry yourself. What about a fellow soldier, someone who is actively engaged in the battle throughout the week, taking the arrows of a world that is opposed to God, opposed to God's law, are you filling up the afflictions meant for Christ in yourself? Or do you come to church and maybe applaud and admire the sacrifices of others, but shy away and make excuses when it comes time to get blood on your hands yourself? So, the first example of how the relationships of believers should be defined is that we are to think relationally, think rightly, relationally, think about the unbelievable closeness that comes with being brothers and sisters who are also fellow workers and fellow soldiers. This is who we are to one another through Christ, and it is how we always must think in relation to each other. Second point, point two, the second principle from this passage that should define relationships within the church that we should be those who love selflessly. Love selflessly. This is the example that we see in Epaphroditus in the next two verses. Look again at verses 26 and 27. It says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. This is the example that we see in Epaphroditus in the next two verses. Look at, I mean, when, when you think of loving selflessly, the example of Epaphroditus should come to your mind. We discover that Epaphroditus came down with some sort of really serious illness. The Philippians somehow discovered that this was the case, and they were quite worried about him. We don't know exactly what the illness was uh, that Epaphroditus had or exactly how the Philippians found out, but generally what has been uh, surmised by most scholars and commentators is a situation in which Epaphroditus set out on his journey from Philippi with several other people um, because when you're traveling a long distance, especially when you have a large amount of money, you would not do it alone in this time. As Epaphroditus was traveling, he would have stayed in different towns along the way, possibly with other churches and fellow believers. And once the original companions arrived with him at a certain place, they probably where, where he was safe, they probably went back to Philippi while Epaphroditus continued on the next leg of the journey with some new companions from whatever town he was in there. But he slowly made his way to Rome to Paul. So what more than likely happened is that Epaphroditus became quite ill along the way. He became sick along the way. And he was sick at the time that the original traveling companions went back to Philippi. They had no idea just how sick he was or how sick he might become. But they left him, wherever they left him, knowing the severity of the illness. And when they returned home at a time before you know, before email or phone, all they could do was report 
that the last time they saw Epaphroditus, he was very sick, but he was continuing on his mission. And that would be the last that they heard of him. So it seems as though the Philippians now maybe know that, that Epaphroditus has recovered, but they're unsure of the circumstances, they're unsure of the extent, but there's also a chance that when Epaphroditus shows up with the letter to the church at Philippi, with this letter that, that, that Paul is writing, that we're studying right now, this will be the way that they discover that he's better. That, and that might be one of the reasons why Paul is so explicit about just how serious this illness was. He, he wants them not to be deceived by how well Epaphroditus might appear to be to, to them now, um, that he was able to make another month and a half long trip to Philippi. Paul wants to make sure that they know just how much Epaphroditus risked and therefore just how much they ought to honor him when he arrives. But what is truly remarkable about Epaphroditus and why he stands as such an amazing example of the selfless love that we're to have for one another is seen in the fact that he was so sick that he was near death and yet, the thing that causes him distress is his concern that the Philippians would be concerned, not knowing what has happened to him. He's concerned that they're concerned for him, and that's what's causing him the most distress. Epaphroditus was so sick that he almost died. And yet, the thing that caused him distress was knowing that some believers that he loved might be distressing over not knowing if he was all right or not. That sounds unbelievable. And, and that, that's out of the world, out of this world type of personality. When it comes to what love should look like, it sounds so unbelievable that if it weren't written in the pages of Scripture and you were just talking to someone, most of us would have a tough time believing that that's what that person actually meant or felt. We would second-guess their motives. Especially this day and age, right? Especially our day and age. We live in a culture that loves, loves to maximize our individual pain and make sure everyone knows, make sure everyone knows what it is that we are struggling with at any given moment. It's very important that people know that I'm suffering. Most of the time, right, when people are using that phrase, uh, I'm just, I'm just telling my truth, we just need to tell that person, that person just needs to tell their truth. It's in reference to some sort of pain or persecution that they have uh, perceived or that they have experienced that, they that everyone else needs to just step back and believe and notice it. Pay attention to their pain. We live in a sympathy-loving culture. Sympathy-demanding culture. And that is one of the main reasons why the example of Epaphroditus here is so unbelievable for us. But here Paul, what Paul is doing here is, is he's putting on display the exact type of Christ-like love that he has been calling the Philippians to throughout the letter. The word longing, he says he's, he's, he has been longing for you all. That's the same word that Paul uses for himself in chapter 1 and verse 8, where he says that, or where Paul says that he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. So we are seeing in him the same type of affection and love that Paul has for them. But even more than that, even more than showing Paul like affection, even more than that, this is what it looks like to show Christ-like affection. This is the example of Christ-like humility that Paul was imploring the Philippians to have at the beginning of chapter 2 in verses 3 and 4. Look at that again, where he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but what? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is, this is what that looks like. It's, it's one thing to give the commandment to put others above yourself. But then when you see it in action, in the life of Epaphroditus, it becomes all the more miraculous. 
all the more obvious that this is not something that can happen unless the Holy Spirit is doing a miraculous work in one's heart and life. Not only is it a type of love that is only possible with the power of the Holy Spirit, but it is a type of love that we should expect to be to have formed in our lives. We should, even though we marvel at it, if the gospel is true and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit is something that is really happening, we should expect this type of love to be forming in our lives as well. As Christians, we should expect that God is going to be working in our lives in such a way that we will have love like the type of love we see in Epaphroditus. And why should we expect this? Because we were saved by Christ to become more like Him. And what did we read about the humble nature of Jesus Christ and His love for us in the passage following those verses in 3 and 4? Look at verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The same love, the very same love we see exemplified in Jesus Christ, the humble love that places others above yourself to the point of the most extreme humbling possible that we see in Christ. And see in his example, here we see Epaphroditus is a real-life example of a follower of Christ who is truly following Christ in what it means to love others. A love that is able to completely clear your life of any need or even desire whatsoever to get someone to try and see what you're going through or to get someone to feel bad for you. Yes, as Christians, of course, we want to get to know people so well, our brothers and sisters, co-workers, co-soldiers, that we are able to bear their burdens. We want to do that for them. But when it comes to our side of things, our heart aches for the pain of others as they bear our burdens with us. That, that's where we should be. So, so just in case you're able, able to read an incredibly convicting passage like Philippians 2, 3 through 8, and see the incredibly high standard for humble love that we see exemplified in Christ, and say, well, that's the ideal, and I should be shooting to get as close to that as possible, I guess. But in the end, he's Christ and I'm not. So... I, you know, there's a little wiggle room for me. When Paul points out the example of Epaphroditus, a man who almost dies in gospel service, but could not care less about pity or people feeling sorry for him, he is only concerned for the pain of those who are concerned for him because of his pain. That is what a life changed by Christ looks like when it comes to the ability to love. And if Epaphroditus can love like this, then none of us have any excuse not to do the same. And you can also see this example of love a little bit in, in Paul and the way that he speaks of Epaphroditus. Paul was so invested in the health and the well-being of Epaphroditus that, that the mercy that the Lord showed Epaphroditus was mercy to Paul as well. That's what he says um, in verse 27. God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. Paul demonstrated that he had the same type of love for Epaphroditus that the Philippians had, that he could not bear the thought of losing him. Indeed, seeing Paul so concerned for him when he was about to die, so when, when Paul sees how con, or when Epaphroditus sees how concerned Paul is for him when he's about to die, it might be what caused him to realize that he needed to see the Philippians so that he could allow them to experience the same mercy that Paul feels when God extended mercy to Epaphroditus and healed him. So he's, he wants the Philippians to see what Paul sees, to be able to, 
to feel the mercy of God in his healing the same way Paul was. The Christian community that understands itself to be a family, that understands itself to be fellow workers, fellow soldiers, when one person experiences the mercy of God, everyone shares the joy of the mercy of God together. So we've seen that those in the Christian community should be thinking of each other relationally as family, as fellow workers, as fellow soldiers. They should be loving each other selflessly. Third point, they should be submitting joyfully. Submitting joyfully, verses 28 through 30. Paul says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul commands the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all the joy, with all joy, and to honor men like him. So the command is to receive him with joy and to honor people who risk their lives for the sake of gospel ministry. This is actually the only imperative in this whole section, is, is what we see right there in um, verse 29. Receive him in the Lord with all joy, honor such men. So the command is to receive him with, uh, with joy, honor people who risk their lives for the sake of gospel ministry. And this, when you think about it, on the surface seems like an odd command given the fact that it is evident from the text that they already love him greatly and they will definitely be joyful to see him. Why would they not naturally receive him with joy? And again, this goes back to the point of the entirety of this passage of verses 19 through 30. The, the reason Paul is writing this passage is Paul is explaining why he is sending Epaphroditus to them and not Timothy. That's the whole reason. Timothy is not only well known to them, but we know from the rest, we know him well from the rest of Scripture, right? As, whereas Epaphroditus is here in Philippians and that's it. But Timothy is not, only, is, is not just in Philippians, but he's everywhere. We see him as a traveling companion with Paul during his second and third missionary journeys. Paul mentions him in eight of his epistles, including this one. He is present with him while he writes seven of those. And the one that, that he's mentioned in where he's not present with him, 1 Corinthians, it, it, we see in 1 Corinthians he's not with him because apparently Paul's already sent him to the Corinthians. Right? We know that Paul would send Timothy as someone he would trust to rightly represent him and to exhort others in his place. I mean, th just think of the type of gifting that Timothy must have for Paul to send him to Corinth. And say, you, You've read 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of issues there. And Paul says, you know who's good for that? Timothy. That's impressive. He actually says in 1 Timothy 4, 16-17, I urge you to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So having Timothy come would have been a special honor, and it is no doubt something that the Philippians are hoping for. And so Paul is telling them to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and to honor him. Again, I want to emphasize that there is no evidence here to assume that the Philippians did not want to see Epaphroditus and did not love him. It's just this probably wouldn't have been what at least many of them wanted the most, if they're honest. It's not that Paul's plan is a bad plan. It's probably just a plan that they would tweak a bit if they were the ones making the plan. But they're not. And Paul expects them to be joyfully submissive to this plan. Be joy, joyfully submissive to his plan and to, to where he sees uh, th this going best. With the authority given to him by God to place the different gifts that God has placed around him where he sees fit for them to go. That's Paul's understanding of his authority. God entrusted the Apostle Paul with authority and then God entrusted the Apostle Paul with people. 
people of varying gifts and talents in all of the churches and all of the places that he traveled. And Paul has the great responsibility of recognizing and developing those gifts and those gifted people and then wisely placing them where they will have the greatest impact for good on the church. That's part of God's gift in the leadership of the Apostle Paul. And Paul has decided that right now it is best for Timothy to be with him and for Epaphroditus to go to the Philippians. In verse 28, again, he is convinced that this will bring them joy. It will be good for Epaphroditus' soul as well. And it will make Paul less anxious. Because I'm all the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So all parties concerned. Epaphroditus needs to see you. I need him to see you. You need to see him. God has entrusted church leadership with a sacred and solemn responsibility of recognizing and developing the gifts in the members that God has placed in the church to make decisions that they know that not everyone will agree with. But he has called them to make them anyway. And the church is expected to receive these decisions with joy. Notice it says, he says, in the Lord, with joy, in, in the Lord, with all joy, reminding them that this is within the family of God and under the Lord's sovereign hand. Paul is a good leader, and he has no issues with giving a little bit of explanation for why he's doing what he's doing, for why he's maybe subverting their expectations a little bit. No, no pastor would ever say something, no good pastor would ever say something along the lines of, this is what we've decided, just deal with it. And he explains it a little bit, but he knows that they're going to have some, some difficulty anyway. He does not fully expect the Philippians to probably completely get on board with his plan, but he does expect them to embrace it with joy because he thinks of them the same way he thinks of Epaphroditus, brothers, sisters, who are fellow workers and fellow soldiers, and they know their place and they know where they're supposed to be and what their responsibility is. He knows and trusts that their original intent in sending Epaphroditus, intent in sending Epaphroditus was to lessen his concern. He, he trusts that, he believes that, and to minister to him. And, and now Paul, what Paul is doing is simply showing them how they can continue to do that by receiving him back. So he, he trusts that, that the Philippians, like they said, their original intent was to minister to Paul, to lessen his concern, to lessen his anxiousness. And now Paul is saying, thank you to continue that, I'm sending him back. If you're heart is truly to please God and to be a blessing and ministry to the church, then you understanding that church leadership has been given for just that purpose, and you will be able to do this. You'll be able to understand this. It will not be difficult to joyfully follow the direction of loving leadership, whether it's done the exact same way you would have done it or not. As long as your priorities are the same, your goal is the same, evangelize and disciple, the kingdom spreading across the world, the mission of the church. As long as your priorities are God's priorities and the goal is the same, you too will be able to rejoice in God's good means of getting us there. And part of those means providing church leadership. So, quickly, one fourth and final principle that should define our relationships within the church, serving sacrificially. Serving sacrificially. Paul tells the Philippians that they need to honor men like Epaphroditus, to honor him. It says, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. When Paul says what was lacking in your service, that's not an insult. 
He simply means that, that Epaphroditus took upon himself the important ministry of delivering the gift that they had collected. The Philippians collected this gift, sent it to Paul, and all they needed at the end was to get it there, and that was the ministry that Epaphroditus took up, and it almost cost him his life. The word that's translated as risked his life is one Greek word there. It's, 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 this is the only place in all of the New Testament that it's used. When it shows up in other Greek literature, it is often associated with high-stakes gambling, where the outcome is determined by the roll of the dice and not skill. It's a risk that someone takes where they have and know they have no control over the outcome. It means to expose oneself willingly to danger, to be uncertain of the outcome. So what we see in Epaphroditus is a man who is willing to do what needs to be done regardless of the danger that, might, that it might place him in. Epaphroditus is not being pictured here as a man who takes needless risks. That's not what it's saying. He's not needlessly risky. Paul is not commending pointlessly risky behavior. You don't go drive home with your seatbelts off thinking you're Epaphroditus. There's nothing commendable about risking your life unless it is toward a good, godly purpose. And that's what we see here. He risked his life to complete the service of the Philippians. He risked his life to something. Sacrificial serving means that we see what needs to be done and we do it. We are willing to put our own happiness, our own desires, our money, our time, our health, even our family, and even our own lives, and set them to the side to do what is right. We take all of those things, we hold them up to God, and we trust Him to do whatever, to take whatever, whatever His will is, and we just concentrate on our obedient service. Paul says that we are to honor men like this because they are amazing examples of courageous Christ followers. Those who truly have died to this life are living for Christ and the life to come. And they are also examples to us of the type of followers of Christ that we all should be. Paul once again brings up the character of Epaphroditus as an example of the type of humility that he has been imploring us to have in, have in the first two chapters all the way through. Again, if you think of what we just read in verses 5 through 8 of Philippians chapter 2, the mind of Christ. Look at, again, look at just verse 8. And being found, this is the example of Christ, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Epaphroditus humbled himself. He had the mind of Christ, humbled himself all the way to the point of being ready and willing to die for the purposes of his Savior. I think that there are probably many of us who foolishly think too much of ourselves and our ability to risk everything for the sake of Christ. We maybe look at the example of Epaphroditus and we even look around this culture at many who, are, who have sacrificed much for the sake of faithfulness to the gospel. Look around the world and see that. And though we may not say it out loud, we think that really, if we're honest, the main thing that separates us from men like them is just the opportunity to sacrifice everything for him. And we just haven't had that opportunity yet. We imagine ourselves to be those who will easily go to jail, we easily give up our lives for the cause, yet we aren't even willing many times to sacrifice our comfort to have an uncomfortable but faithful conversation or confrontation. I mean, we're not even able a lot of times to sacrifice some screen time to be faithful disciples, faithful disciple makers in our homes. 
We are way too quick to think of ourselves like in this John Wayne American style, jump to thinking that we're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice while failing to make what can barely be considered to be sacrifices in our everyday lives. We have this example of Epaphroditus who places obedience to Christ and love for his brothers and sisters first. And he trusts God to use his obedience and faithfulness in whichever way he chooses, whether it's in life, whether it's in death. We can see that in him. We can try and emulate that. This makes, and, and, and the fact that he's like this, the fact that he's able to do this, the fact that he loves like he loves, it makes total sense as Epaphroditus looks to the same example of Christ that we all look to. As, as he demonstrates what having the mind of Christ truly looks like. We understand what Christ has done when we understand what Christ has done on our behalf. As we're about to be reminded of in the Lord's Supper, when we understand what that represents, how can we not follow in this example? How can we not also look like this? The body of Christ was broken. The blood of Christ was spilled on our behalf. We have been saved through Christ's vicarious life and death. Therefore, we also give our lives even to the point of death for him and for the same people that he gave his life for, that he gave his life to save, his church. Those who, through his blood, have become our brothers, our sisters, our fellow workers, our fellow soldiers. Because he loved us in this way, we also love each other selflessly. We're to love each other selflessly. We're to gladly submit to those He has lovingly placed over us. And we joyfully serve Him and serve one another sacrificially and then to the greatest extent. Because in light of this table before us and what it represents, how could we not? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your words. Uh, in this book. Thank you for the example we've seen in, in the lives of Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. We can see in these men what we should look like and what we should live for. Lord, keep us from the temptation of dismissing Bible figures as fictional heroes who we can look up to but never be exactly like. Lord, the same Holy Spirit as in Paul and Timothy, Epaphroditus, is in us as well. God, I pray that we would be a church who recognizes who, who recognizes each other as family, as a true family, set apart from any earthly family. It's much, much greater than that. Fellow workers working joyfully towards the same goal, the same mission, to seek and save the lost, to see disciples of Christ grow in Christ-likeness, We'd be able to joyfully accept, submit to church leadership and see it as the gift that you have intended it to be. And that we would live in a self-sacrificing manner, serving each other, no matter, not counting the cost, never counting the cost, serving you, serving each other. Able to truly 
embrace the mind of Christ and have the mind of Christ humble ourselves, be ready to go even to the point of death, even to the point of death for the sake of the one who died to save us, to make us his people. And I pray as we enter this time of communion, as we remember this together, that you would reunite our hearts together even more as a family, made family by the blood of Christ, that we would joyfully, uh, that we would joyfully embrace that reality. That's in, in the name of our head, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.